Let's talk about 1 Peter 5. That's why we're here, isn't it? Enough about me. 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 through 7. I'll read it uh, as we begin here. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. In 2019, just a couple years ago, pre-COVID, so it feels like a decade ago, but only two years ago, uh, there's a lady named Marie Kondo. Have you heard of her? Some of you are thinking, I have no clue who you're talking about. Others of you are like, heard of her? I watched her last week. Uh, Marie Kondo is a Japanese uh, organization consultant. That's her official title. And she had a hit Netflix show that, that went on a couple years ago. And the show's title was Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And though she was unfamiliar to many Americans until that point, she was already a celebrity in Japan. She was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2015. She's published four books, one of which is already a New York Times bestseller. We're just kind of late to the ballgame here as Americans. Her organizational method is what she's famous for. She calls it the Marie Method, after her own name. And she advocates for organizing belongings by category, keeping only those that spark joy. Those are her two favorite words. Does it spark joy? Interestingly, that method actually comes from Shintoism, um, but that's neither here nor there. She instructs her clients to gather all the clothes in their home first, so every single article of clothing, pull out of your closets, pull out of storage, put in your living room, and then she goes one by one through the articles of clothing. You're thinking, how long would that take some of us? <laughs> one by one. And, and asking the same question, does it spark joy for you? No, throw it away. Does it spark joy? Yes, keep it. Over and over and over again. She then repeats that same process with other groups of items, keeping only those things that spark joy. Very tedious, very time-consuming, but apparently very effective. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see that Peter commands believers to be clothed with humility. If Peter could fast forward 2,000 years and watch Netflix, he would see that Marie Kondo has a great method. And maybe he would even borrow it and apply it to spiritual clothing. Maybe he would say something like this. Pride doesn't spark joy, so get rid of it. Humility sparks joy, so put it on. The theme of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, is putting on humility. And we read these verses a moment ago, so I won't read them again. Three times in three verses, Peter commands us to put on humility. So what is humility? What is humility? Spurgeon said that humility is to make the right estimate of oneself. Andrew Murray, in his classic book on humility, writes, Humility is a simple acknowledgement of the truth of our position as creature and God's position as creator, yielding to him. Ken Collier defines humility as the lowering of self to find that God is all, self is nothing, and others are more important. And obviously the most, uh, the ultimate example, the greatest example of humility is our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of us must be humble. Peter says so in this passage. All of you, he says, be clothed with humility. And just like you select clothes to wear each day for different occasions, you and I will choose to clothe ourselves with either pride or humility. Those are the only two choices we have in this arena. To clothe ourselves with humility, we have to resist putting on the garments of pride. But those clothes are so alluring. Why? Why do we put on pride instead of humility? (laughs) There are a number of reasons. Think about a couple here. Pride is our most comfortable and our most natural outfit. It suits us, we think. And we don't realize how much God hates us. God hates it, excuse me. If we could see our pride the same way God does, we would always clothe ourselves with humility, right? Scripture says in multiple places that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For that reason, we must daily clothe ourselves with humility. And it's a daily choice, is it not? Just because you have spiritual victory today does not guarantee spiritual victory tomorrow. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 contains instructions to help us clothe ourselves with humility. Peter specifically, I think, calls us to lay aside three garments of pride. We're going to continue that analogy, the clothing analogy. Three garments of pride. And these warnings to, to lay aside these three aspects of pride are appropriate for any situation. But as your pastor has shared with me, the, the things coming up for you all, buying a new church facility, moving down the road, hopefully growing and seeing more people come to faith in Christ. A lesson on pride and humility is especially appropriate. Because when we start to compare ourselves, I think the analogy was the hermit shells. When we start to see, hey, I'm, I'm getting pretty big. I'm now on my fourth hermit shell. We can kind of get full of ourselves. And it can happen so subtly, Right? So we must take the warning that we collectively need to practice these instructions and be a church and individuals that are clothed with humility. Now, before we get into the text, two clarifications. First, there are a whole lot more manifestations of pride than the three we're going to talk about today. If you're looking for more resources on that, there are several out there. Um, Stuart Scott's little book, From Pride to Humility, is a great one. Second, just because I on this does not mean that I am the epitome of humility, okay? Let's just get that out and covered right off the bat. Frankly, it's something I wrestle with daily. And I'm taking you to this passage because this passage in particular has been helpful to me the last few months, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you as well. Well, the first article of proud clothing Peter calls us to lay aside is found in verse 5. Let's read it again. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The first article of clothing to lay off is arrogance. Arrogance. What is arrogance? We could define arrogance this way. Arrogance is an attitude of superiority or self-importance. And it reveals itself in a number of ways, in many different ways. Arrogant people have the mindset of a master, thinking I'm better than you, I'm more important than you, or I know more than you. Their opinion of themselves 
far surpasses what reality is. And, and so they kind of live in a, in, a, in a fantasy world with themselves at the center. Arrogant people are also not thankful. They're not teachable. They're not gracious either. They blame others for mistakes while refusing to admit their own. Often they get frustrated and angry with people. Arrogant people don't read their Bible, don't pray, at least consistently. Deep down, they don't think that they need God. In fact, they believe, you know, I I could probably do okay by myself. And none of us would say, oh, that's me. Yeah, I just don't need God in my life. We would never admit that. But if we're honest, some of these characteristics of arrogance are in our lives. It's easy, if you're like me, to think of other people who are arrogant, you know. Oh, yeah, arrogant. Yeah, that guy. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, that other teenager. But we have to do self-reflection here. If we're honest, these qualities describe us more than we care to admit. It's not an if, really, but a where. Where is arrogance showing up in your life? So as you think about that, consider or notice here three aspects of arrogance Peter draws out. First of all, arrogance is displayed toward authorities usually displayed from younger people to, over, to older people. That's the opening exhortation. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Who, who are these younger people referring to? People who are younger. Youthful people. And in the context, the reference to elders most likely is the spiritual elders of the church. If you glance back to verses 1 through 4, Peter has just given instructions to the elders or the pastors of the church. So the response for younger believers then is to submit to your spiritual leaders. But this also points to a a broader principle that I want to step back from. A broader principle that other parts of scripture teaches. And it's this. Younger people need to listen to the wise counsel of older believers. I still classify myself as younger. Um, So if you're like me and you're younger, you, you probably don't like hearing that. But younger people ought to listen to older people. Why? Well, we tend to think we know it all. We tend to think that we've got life figured out. And and to be honest, the story of Rehoboam really comes to mind. Remember Rehoboam? He was the son of Solomon. Solomon leaves him the kingdom. The people come to Rehoboam. They say, lighten our load, we'll serve you forever. The older men who counseled his father said, listen to them. The younger men said, double down, go harder, do a power move. Show them how tough you are. Rehoboam foolishly listened to his arrogant friends, and as a result, the kingdom split. Alexander the Great, probably one of the most successful leaders in world history, right? Conquered the known world by the age of 32. There are a number of stories about him that that talk about how great he was, but there are also a number of stories that talk about how arrogant he was. I actually found this quote that I'm about to read on Forbes magazine. Because this magazine article talked about how American audiences view him. Listen to this. American audiences have a special affinity for Alexander the Great. Why? As the personification of rebellious youth. His short life and his glorious career stand as affirmation of the uniquely American perspective. Here it is. That youth unfettered by the conventional restraints of its elders, and free to pursue its own dreams, knows no limits to what it might accomplish. That mentality describes the spirit of our age, right? 
It's certainly not the spirit of Scripture, though. Peter calls upon younger people to be subject to, to voluntarily submit themselves, to to choose to lower themselves under another person. But I think we all understand that arrogance is not just limited to younger people with older. All of us must guard against arrogance in our relationships because arrogance is present in all our relationships. Verse 5 continues, Clothe yourselves, that's a command, all of you with humility toward one another. Well, who should put on humility? All of you. Who is humility shown toward? One another. That means every single one of us in the room, regardless of rank or status, must embrace humility and must show it to other people, regardless of their rank or status. This is a universal call for complete humility. Some, to put it in the clothing metaphor, some, some uh, outfits are not appropriate attire. Humility is always an appropriate attire. Well, how do we clothe ourselves with humility? How do we do that? Humility has to start with our beliefs and our, our thoughts, right? You can do humble things on the outside, but are you really humble if in your heart you're saying, I'm still better than you? We've all done that, right? We've done the humble thing on the outside, but in the inside we're saying, look at me, I'm so humble, I'm doing this. <laughs> I'm better than you. Or I know more than you. So we have to start with our thoughts, and we have to put God where he belongs. That's where it starts. Romans 12, 3 says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Well, how high should we think about ourselves? Well, just remember what the gospel teaches us. God is who he is, and we are sinners. That's where humility starts. It's a recognition that God is perfect, and we are not. Philippians 2 illustrates how humility begins with our thoughts and then shows itself in our actions. I'm borrowing the New King James here because it really draws this out. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility is what the ESV says here, the New King James, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves, better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So humility, then, is a mindset that allows me to not think about me. It's a mindset of of service toward other people, of putting God in his rightful place, and then prioritizing other people and their things above my own. Well, 1 Peter 5.5 also tells us that arrogance is ultimately directed toward God. The last part of verse 5 says this, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there are two contrasting phrases here, right? Two contrasting phrases. God opposes the proud, God gives grace or shows favor to the humble. This is a quotation, maybe your Bible has it in the margin, this is a quotation of Proverbs 3, verse 34. And this quotation of Proverbs 3 appears a couple of different times in the New Testament. And what this quotation does is it shows us the nature of arrogance. It's ultimately a rebellion against God. Why does God resist the proud? Why does God not stand pride? Because pride elevates a person to godlike status. The arrogant person has declared themselves to be a rival of God. I can live in my own parallel universe that God is not a part of. 
God doesn't tolerate rebels who, who attack him. He doesn't put up with rivals. He actively fights against pride. Oh, and by the way, God is undefeated. The final phrase of verse 5 calls for us to embrace humility so that we may receive God's grace. God doesn't resist humble people. In fact, he draws near to them. Isaiah 57, I read this verse a few days ago in my devotional time. For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Talk about an introduction. This is a majestic, glorious God who's utterly incomparable. And what does he do? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive, to bring back to life the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I remind myself of verses like these often because they convict me so much. We tend to do the opposite of this verse, right? We talk about God being high and holy, but then we say, I dwell, meaning me, I dwell in the high and holy place. We don't evidence the contrite, the the humble spirit. Ask yourself, do I want to be close to God? Ask yourself as a church, do we want our church to be close to God? Do, Do we want to make an impact in our community? Then humility is your calling. God says he'll dwell with those who are humble. That's pretty clear then. Lay aside pride. An arrogant Christian is actually a contradiction in terms. An arrogant Christian is a contradiction in terms. Well, back in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 builds on the truths we've just looked at. Peter instructs us to put off a second aspect of pride. And that is the pride of control. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To humble ourselves, we have to surrender control of our lives to God. To surrender control to God. Proud people love to be in control. They love the power that comes with it. They try to get their own way. That's what a proud person does. And frankly, the easiest way to get your own way is to be in control. Controlling people will be headstrong and ambitious for self-advancement. They'll use stubbornness or intimidation or manipulation, any tool to leverage my control and my authority. 3 John 9, verse 9, describes a man named Diotrephes. He was, what John said, someone who loved to have the preeminence. John says that he refused to welcome the apostle and even put other people out of the church who wanted to fellowship with the apostle. Does that sound controlling to you? The word preeminence literally means the love of being first. Diotrephes loved the benefits, the power, the control of being in charge. And he wasn't about to surrender that to some apostle, whoever that guy was. And that's kind of how foolish it is. That one of the men who leaned on Jesus' breast was refused by this other man. There are three phrases in verse 6 to explain how the pride of control prevents us from humbling ourselves. So we have have to keep these these three truths in mind. First of all, proud people run their own life apart from God. Humble people live under God's control. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, where? Under a mighty hand of God. That expression, the mighty hand of God, is really interesting. It appears 16 times in Scripture, 15 of which are in the Old Testament. That means that this is the only New Testament. 
reference. Fifteen times in the Old Testament. Thirteen of those uses refer to God's powerful act of redemption in bringing the people out of Egypt. You got it. The other two Old Testament uses of this phrase, the mighty hand of God, refer to God's future regathering of Israel. In other words, every time this expression is used, it refers to a miraculous demonstration of God's power in redeeming his people. So what is Peter saying here? Certainly he's saying that God is powerful and can work in our lives. It can be no less than that. But could this phrase be an allusion to God's powerful work of redemption? Why do we think then that we can live without God's mighty hand in our lives? Why do we think we can control our lives better than God's mighty hand can? God has redeemed us from sin. We're bought with a price. Certainly, he will give us all things now. How far would Israel have gotten out of Egypt if God's mighty hand wasn't against them wasn't for them against Pharaoh. How far would they have gotten? To their workstation and back. That's how far. They would have gotten nowhere. How far can we get without God's mighty hand at work for us? How far will this church advance without God's mighty hand? The scary thing about churches is that you can advance in, in physical things like building size without knowing that God isn't advancing with you. How can we advance without God? Humble people submit to God's authority and control. And if you're like me, who likes to be in control, who likes things done a really particular way, surrendering control is really difficult. Giving over the keys of your life to someone else is hard. It takes a leap of faith to do that, but that's exactly what God's calling us to. Proud people run their own life apart from God. Proud people also live on their own time frame. Humble people wait on God's timing. Verse 6 continues, So at the proper time, he may exalt you. Pride tries to advance me according to my timetable. It's ambitious for what I want right now. Pride demands to get my way in the moment that I want it. Humility submits to God's timing in every phase of life, even for our advancement. Can you think of any scriptural examples of people who were told they would be exalted and then had to wait for it? How about Joseph? Joseph had dreams that predicted his exaltation above his brothers. Remember the sheaves and the sun, the moon, the stars. His brothers really liked him for that. They they hated him for it. But before these things came true, he had to wait at least 22 years. At least 22 years. Psalm 105.19 says that until that time God's word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. Because here he is with a promise from God given to him in this dream, and his life experience is not matching it. The word of the Lord tested him. How about David? David was anointed king most likely around 15. Started ruling when he was about 30. He had to wait half of his life to become king. And in the meantime, all he had to do was run around the backside of the desert trying not to get killed by Saul. I mean, no big deal, right? Just a trip to the grocery store. Can you imagine what David was thinking sitting in a cave hiding from Saul, not making a noise? 
Do you ever think that he had a moment where he said, God, you told me I was going to be king, but I just don't see it happening. I don't see a path here. The Lord Jesus also waited for God to exalt him. He came, as we've mentioned Philippians 2 several times this morning, he came to earth to redeem the world. Talk about a mission with critical importance that we all benefit from. And how long did he wait? About 30 years. Luke says that he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And it wasn't that he just waited and got really good training, you know, like in the best places in Jerusalem. Maybe he traveled to Athens, spent some time with the philosophers. No, 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 no. He lived in the middle of obscurity at a hick village in the backside of the, the wilderness, essentially. He lived in Nazareth. Remember what, what it was Nathaniel, I believe it was, said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Transparently, kind of way, I kind of think that way about Pickens. <laughs> Can anything good come out of there? I mean, other than the flea market. If you're from Pickens, forgive me, okay? That was not in my notes. When Satan tempted Jesus to worship him and receive the kingdoms of the world in return, the temptation wasn't that he would be exalted. Jesus already knew that he was going to be exalted. What was the temptation? It was to skirt the timing of God's plan and the way that God's plan would be accomplished. Jesus flatly refused. He said, that's not my Father's will. Even after he began his public ministry, Jesus waited for three years before going to the cross. Most of us, when we have something so pressing that it has to be done, we try to do that thing first. Jesus said, actually, I'm not going to do that first. I'm actually going to wait three years to do that. Often he said, my time has not yet come. He was waiting for God to work. And in our culture of streaming services, next-day shipping, same-day shipping, high-speed Internet, waiting for anything is just hard. We've been conditioned that way. But if we put on humble clothing, part of that is submitting to God's timing and God's pace in our lives. God's never in a hurry, sometimes much to our chagrin. His timeline is always precise. And if we chafe because we don't have what we want, we're revealing that we're not really submitting to God. If God's pace seems slow, wait for it. Submit to His timing. Humility teaches us to wait for God's timing in all aspects of life. Verse 6 concludes, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Here's the third aspect of control that Peter calls us to lay aside. Proud people advance themselves. Humble people let God advance them. Controlling people are ambitious to get ahead and seek self-promotion. We could go to a number of scriptural examples to see both positive and negative for this, but on the 4th of July, consider George Washington, our nation's first president. He guided our nation in its infancy. He was the general that led uh, our nation to triumph in warfare. But George Washington didn't want to be the president. He wanted to retire to his manor in the Virginian countryside and become a farmer. That's what he wrote. That's what he said he wanted to do. This is amazing. He didn't campaign for the presidency. He didn't spend a single dollar in self-advertisement. Imagine that in today's world. <laughs> he is the only president, in spite of those things, to be unanimously elected by the Electoral College. If that were happening in our world today, that would essentially be all 50 states saying, there's this one individual that we want to be president. He's done nothing of the sort to announce that he wants to be. In fact, he's told us he doesn't want to be, but we're all agreed he's the right person for the job. 
that ain't happening. (laughs) Washington famously refused to run for a third term because it looked too much like the monarchy of England. And he worked hard to make sure the presidency didn't assume too much power. Also ironic in today's world. Some have referred to him as the reluctant president. And I think he's just a perfect example of someone who didn't seek his own advancement or promote himself. Because of the country's needs, he was essentially forced to accept it. And he did it for the good of others. And that's exactly what humility is. Doing something for the benefit of others. Humble people and humble churches don't seek their own advancement. They, they don't worry how they'll get ahead. They don't, they're not self-promoters. They're God-promoters. They serve others instead of serving themselves. Actually, if you think about it, humble people don't use others or manipulate others. Have you ever been manipulated? Have you ever been used? And you kind of walk away thinking, that person just used me. Or you find out later that, that the only reason someone had an interest in you was to get something out of you. It really leaves you with a sour taste in your mouth, doesn't it? That's something a controlling, proud person does. Humble people don't view people as currency to spend to get what I want. They say, what are your needs? How can I actually love you and minister to you? Humility surrenders control to God and finds that there's great freedom in allowing God to control life. Well, let's continue. Verse 7 gives us the third garment of pride. And it may surprise you. I'll give you a warning. It may surprise you. It's anxiety. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, verse 7 is a well-known verse that deals with anxiety. Maybe, maybe some of you have even memorized that and, have, have, and this verse has helped you in your growth with worry or fear or anxiety. And so it should. In the New King James Version, there's a word play here. It's, it's really quite wonderful. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Care or anxiety refers to that feeling of nervousness or panic, the pit of your stomach, that kind of starts gnawing at you and then growing and then eating you up when you sense danger or trouble approaching? You know what I'm talking about. It includes fears, worries, anxieties that burden us and weigh us down. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how big or how small, it seems like anxiety always finds a route into our stomach. And this verse, verse 7, seems pretty straightforward, right? Give your burden to God and he'll help you. So what's the connection to pride? What's the connection to pride? Well, notice the punctuation at the end of verse 6. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. What's the punctuation mark there? Comma. So that means the first word of verse 7 is casting. Is it capitalized? No. Verse 7, then, continues the sentence begun in verse 6. So the word casting at the, end, at the beginning of verse 7 is actually not the main verb. You say, oh, I didn't sign up for, for grammar today. Give me 15 seconds, okay? Casting is not the main verb. That means that it is an action that further explains how we go about doing the main verb. Well, what's the main verb? The main verb in verse 6 is humble yourselves. Verse 7 is further explaining how we humble ourselves. We could ask Peter this question. Peter, you've commanded me to humble myself. How should I do that? What do I do to humble myself? And he would say, cast your cares on God. Stop being anxious. That means, according to this passage, if you're burdened down with anxieties, it's actually because you're proud. And maybe you've not thought of that connection before. Let's talk about that for a moment. How is anxiety a form of pride? 
Well, consider two connections. First of all, anxiety refuses to admit my limitations by taking on burdens that only God can bear. I'll be honest, I was wrestling with this idea Friday night. I have a child who's throwing up. I'm supposed to be flying out at 7 o'clock the next morning. Supposed to be speaking here today and at camp tomorrow. And I just didn't know if it was going to happen. And the Lord graciously reminded me of what I was going to preach on. And it was a burden that I, I can't fix it. I can't heal my son. I can't change the flight time. I can't, I can't do any of that. It's totally out of my control. And what God was doing is saying, Zach, look, you, you have to live this. You have to say that the burden is too big for you, so stop bearing it. You see, pride blinds us, doesn't it? It tricks us. It deceives us. Anxiety refuses to give away my burdens because our pride has blinded us to our weaknesses and limitations. Author Hannah Anderson writes in her little book, Humble Roots, all your anxiety, all your worry, all your sleeplessness can't change a thing. And suddenly you come face to face with your limitations. Suddenly you realize how little you control your life. Anxiety refuses to admit my limitations. But pride also lies to us, doesn't it? We can't bear these burdens because only God is able to bear them. Anxiety says, no, 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 I'll take this heavy burden. I don't, I don't need God to take it for me. These anxieties are too heavy for us, but we're too proud to admit it. This is like when you go to the weight room and you get a bunch of macho guys in there and, and they've got too much weight on the bar, but none of them want to be the first one to say it's too much. And so, you know, they collapse with it and it, it turns viral because somebody posted the video. That's kind of how we are. No, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. I really, I really got it. And you're going, mm, I don't think you got it. And sometimes in his grace, God says, fine, try to have it. And it takes the weight of it crushing us before we realize, I don't have it. Hannah Anderson says again, pride convinces us that we're stronger and more capable than we actually are. Pride convinces us that we must do and be more than we're able So when we're anxious, we're telling God one of two things. Either we refuse to let God be God, thinking we know better than him. Sometimes we're there. A lot of times we're not, because we know that that's not right. Where we slip into is usually, we don't believe who God is. We don't believe God when he says, this is who I am. In other words, we don't believe that God is actually powerful enough to take us, take this for us. We don't believe he's actually wise enough. Well, of course, none of us would say, no, I believe God's power has a limit and his knowledge is... None of us would say that. But by our choices and by our anxieties, we are saying, God, I I don't believe you. I I can't trust you for this. When we give our burdens to the Lord, we humbly recognize our weaknesses. We humbly depend on God for deliverance and strength because we can't do it. When we give our burdens to the Lord, we humbly acknowledge his control and his wisdom and his power over our burdens. Here's a second connection to anxiety. Anxiety attempts to solve my problems without God's solutions. In other words, anxiety refuses to trust God. And you probably knew that already. You knew that anxiety is a lack of trust in God. But why is it a lack of trust in God? Well, worry is a form of pride. This is a quote from a favorite commentator of mine. Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they're convinced that they must solve all their problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. 
When believers throw their worries upon God, they express, express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all their life. A lack of trust in God is not God's fault, right? I mean, have you ever thought of it that way? God, I just can't trust you. Well, that's not His fault. <laughs> that, that's on us. Maybe you've had someone look you in the face and say, I can't trust you, and you're going, well, that's not my problem because I've done everything I can to, to convince you of that. I've been there. The act of giving our burdens to God admits both our inability to solve our own problems and our belief in God that he can solve them. So it admits, I'm weak, but you're strong. And in my weakness, your power is made perfect. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 9. Paul says, in, your, in my weakness, your power is seen. Well, how does uh, humility solve anxiety? The solution is by casting your anxieties on God. Verse 7 teaches us to throw or to propel our burdens on God. Peter is quoting from Psalm 55 here. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, he shall sustain you. When we cast our burdens, we are throwing them on God, saying, Lord, your shoulders are the ones designed to bear this burden. Humility recognizes, I'm limited, I'm weak, I can't do it. And then humility recognizes that God can. The Lord also is not just saying, give them to me, hurry up, you know, like, like some arbiter, you know, some, some third party exchange here. He's saying, give them to me. Why? What's the reason? Because he cares for us. So this isn't an a unemotional, well, let's get this transfer over here. Come on, you're taking up time on the clock. He, he loves us. If I will not humble myself, I won't give God my cares. So, so God cares for you, and he's able to bear your burden. Remember, he's the one with a mighty hand. He's the one that can do signs and wonders and deliver his people from the, the, a powerful nation. It's the same God that's at work today. That God is your God and my God. He loves us so much that he will take our heavy burdens and anxieties so that we don't have to. Um, I showed you a picture of my two, boys, two of my boys earlier. Here's Zane and Xander again. And uh, for Christmas, they got matching sweatshirts and matching backpacks and matching water bladders. Zane calls them bladers. And every time I say it, I have to make sure I say it correctly because he says it wrong so frequently. Um, So now we have them, when we go hiking, they carry their own water, their own gear, right? It's great. I don't have to carry, you know, four backpacks on my back. I just carry a kid, you know, whatever. Uh, Somehow that math doesn't work for me. But... They love wearing these backpacks. It's gotten them exciting about hiking. Zane doesn't cry anymore. That's great. And sometimes Xander, who's the younger one, at the end of a hike, he gets a little worn down. We're going three, four miles. I mean, we're, we're doing stuff. He just turned four a couple weeks ago. It's understandable that he would get worn down. We'll say that Kate or I wanted to help him out. So we offered to take his backpack for, for him. Well, what help would that be to him? That's huge. Right? A little bit of water, maybe a sweatshirt, binoculars, maybe if you remember those, um, a map of where we're going. That's not real heavy, is it? But to him, because he's so small, that, that's like a massive help. For us, adults, that's quite light. In fact, we can just kind of toss that into our backpack and not even really feel it. To a tired four-year-old, that's a burden weighing him down. He should give us the backpack. Only a stubborn and proud kid would refuse to give away the burden. Besides, we're offering to help him because we care about him and because we want to get moving a little bit. And there's a little self-interest there. 
But with the Lord, there's no necessarily self-interest involved. He's caring for us because he loves us. And yet, how often are we, you and I, like my children? Um, God says, here, I, I love you. I'm powerful enough. We're struggling under the weight of our load of cares. God says, give me the backpack. And we say, no. How foolish are we? And yet, some of us, by, by reason of years of experience, have refused God over and over, and our backpacks are huge now. And we're so loaded down with anxieties, we can't even make heads or tails of our day. What's our excuse? What's our excuse? He's stronger. It's not a burden to him. He cares for us. By holding on to our anxieties, we reveal our proud hearts because there's no legitimate reason for us to hold on to them. There's no legitimate reason. So according to verse 7, what Peter is saying is that if you're burdened down with anxieties, it's because you're proud. Friday night, as I lay in bed, worrying about all the details, the Lord struck me. Zach, stop being proud. Give me this burden. I remember Psalm 3 and 4. I will lay me down to sleep in peace because you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. I, I failed just as much as you do with this. It was an encouragement to me to have the Spirit prompt these things so that I could then make a little bit of progress. Will you humble yourself? Will you make this connection in your mind? Will you believe that this is a true connection? Will you, will you give God your anxieties? And, and I want to emphasize also, this is not a one-time deal, okay? <laughs> don't, don't act like, oh, I just, that's the secret of my success, that I just do this once and I live a happy life for the rest of my life. Ooh. This is a spiritual discipline that requires the grace of God I think sometimes God doesn't allow these things to be easy because he wants to test our obedience. He wants to test how much we truly desire him. Create new habits of faith as you renew your mind and cast your cares on him. My grandfather died about 10 years ago now. And one of the things we had to do after the funeral was help my grandma clean out his clothes. Grandpa was a big yard sailor. You know where this is going. And when we finally purged his clothing, we found out that he had some clothes with tags still on them. My dad counted between 40 and 50 suit jackets in various clauses. 40 to 50. You could wear a different suit jacket to church each week and not repeat for like a whole year. Mind-blowing. We ended up filling a car with 15 to 20, you know, of the big 30-gallon bags of uh, trash bags. Filled those with clothes. Donated them to Goodwill. Well... I know my grandpa. He didn't set out to have piles and piles of clothes. It just kind of happened that way. He never got around to purging. He just kind of kept accumulating without purging. And perhaps you need to do that today. You need to have a spiritual clothing purge. Have you been dressing in proud clothes? Maybe you've worn some of these proud clothes out because you've used them over and over again and they're comfortable on you. You like them. They've gotten you success in your eyes. Maybe it, they've just started accumulating. And like we have to do every so often, you need to just purge and say, hmm, that's not like Jesus, that's not like Jesus, that's not like Jesus, that needs to go. I don't know where you fall on that. But the Bible exhorts us to do this. The Bible commands us to put on humility. Repent of our sins of pride and be clothed correctly. As Peter says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And and I want to encourage you. You may have a lot of pride to purge. 
If you're like me, there's more there than you care to admit. And yet, that's the, tr- that's, that's the encouragement of this passage, is it not? That when we finally own up to our failures, God says, now my grace is ready. My grace is available to those who humble themselves. So let's start to do that today. Father.